0: Contact 300 yards, sir. Contact inside minimum sonar range. Contact inside minimum
1: sonar range, sir. Hydrophone strong, very strong. Hydrophone strong, very
0: strong, sir. Overrepping screws. Overrepping screws, sir. He's trying to slip by under- the Retain our present heading. All right, sir. Sonar, when we come about, standard sweeps on both our bows. Sonar, sonar bridge, switch. when we come aye about... All right, sir. You were listening to was a scene from the new Tom Hanks World War Two submarine movie Greyhound, which you could now see on Apple TV. Uh, I got to tell you this, guys, I fucking love this movie, and this isn't me being an advertising guy. You know, you've listened to the show. I'm not advertising for apple tv who gives a fuck about apple tv this movie was awesome and it was refreshing to me in a time period where uh there wasn't a lot there isn't a lot of movies like this made anymore i was surprised i was really surprised to see the ad for it, the commercial for it because i'm like wow they're still making world war ii movies at this level really fucking rad uh and then because we work Full disclosure, we work with a company that helps us book guests on the show every once in a while. That's how we get some of the larger guests on the show. And the opportunity to interview the director of this movie came up, and I immediately jumped on it. Immediately jumped on it. Why? Well, and why is Greyhound so great? And why am I praising it so much? Because it's a movie that is about actors, that's about characters physically doing something. All the people have a task, I was completely fascinated with what it takes to actually run a battleship. I was fascinated with the procedural element of this movie. Um, And then who doesn't love Tom Hanks? Who doesn't love Tom Hanks in a World War II movie? I mean, you know it's gonna be historically accurate if he's involved with it, right? And so I remember I sat down, I put it on, I really wasn't expecting much, much, and I was just completely enthralled. Now it's not Saving Private Ryan. It's a completely different type of war movie. And then technically it's gorgeous. It's a beautifully shot film. And oftentimes I'm sitting there going like, how the fuck, how did they pull this stuff off? So when I got asked if I wanted to interview the director of that movie, Mr. Aaron Schneider, I said, yes. And I'm very happy I did because I just finished the interview uh, and we talked about We talked a lot about his career path as a cinematographer, how he got into cinematography, um, how he went and created his own short film, self-financed his own short film to make that jump into directing, how like one of his first feature films starred Robert Duvall, Bill Murray, Sissy Spacek. If you haven't seen it yet, go check out his film, Get Low, right? What an amazing cast of characters. We talk about how he found himself in that position and then how he got into the position how he met tom hanks and how he got this movie because he's not one of those big time directors that would normally get asked to do this uh so it's a fascinating it's a fascinating conversation and i'm excited to have you guys here i'm excited to have you guys here talk about the show thank you if you haven't figured it out already you are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How's it going? What's new? Welcome to the new season. Welcome to the new podcast. I Hope you guys enjoyed episode 100. I know we had a lot of fun putting this together for you guys. And as promised on that show, we are doing bigger and better things. We have a whole new sound on this show. That opening track that you were listening to was one a new one from Code Electro one of our favorite contributing music artists on this program, Um, and I'm super, super excited about the direction that the show is headed in. And if you guys don't do so already, please follow me on Instagram at MikePetchy or follow the podcast at Love With The Process Pod. That's Love With The Process, P-O-D on Instagram. There, give us some feedback. Tell us what you think about the show. Tell us what you love about the show. Do you like the new songs? Do you like the new tracks? Are you happy with our guests? I think this show's really gonna surprise you guys. Uh, it, and I've promised, since I started this show, that I wouldn't just be doing the standard PR, get someone on the show because they're advertising their new show. Literally, when I talked to Aaron before recording this, he's like, what do you wanna talk about? Right? Fucking cool is that? That is what this show does. And sure, Greyhound came out, but it didn't come out last week. It's been out, uh, at this point, over a month. Um, and like I said, go, go check it out, go check it out. It was just a lot of fun and great filmmaking techniques involved with this. It's almost a horror movie, right? For those of you who don't know, what's the tagline here? Hold on, let me see, I wrote some stuff down. I should be professional. So it takes place in World War II about a naval commander leading uh, an allied convoy uh, through, while being stalked by a German submarine, uh, Wolfpack what they call it. So it's a group of German submarines that are stalking these ships and taking them out one by one. It's cool. It's like a horror movie. I really fucking dig it and uh, very excited to have them on the show. Uh, So I don't want to delay it any further because we talk about a lot of really good stuff. Um, So you know the deal. Go grab those noise-canceling headphones. Oh, and by the way, you know, before we get into it, have you bought a t-shirt yet? Because I've been threatening this and hopefully the show will be out. It might be. Hold on, let me. Because I'm recording this ahead of time. Ooh, it may be this may be your last chance. Right? If this show releases when we think it's gonna release, you will only be able to pick up a level the process t-shirt until the 30th, which is Wednesday which if this comes out on, this, on the date, I'm probably gonna fuck myself by saying this, but if this comes out on the 29th, that's tomorrow. So today, while listening to the show, it is your last chance to pick up one of the limited edition In Love With The Process t-shirts. The short sleeve shirts, the storyboard t-shirts that I hand drew myself for you guys, the 12KM t-shirt, all those t-shirts are only available until the 30th of September. So be sure to go pick them up. And here's something that only that you podcast listeners know. If you buy one of those shirts and you get a confirmation code, send me a message on Instagram saying, hey, I just bought a shirt. Here's my confirmation code. I want a C12 cam and I will give you a link to C12 cam for free. All right. That's my thanks for supporting the show and everybody that pays to have a t-shirt. All that money goes to making the show happen. So I love you for it, I know Liam loves you for it. So that's it, okay? So let's get into the episode. I know you're like, Mike, shut the fuck up. We wanna hear about Greyhound, so you know the deal. Grab those noise-canceling headphones, find a nice comfy place to shut out the rest of the world, close your eyes, and get transported to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Aaron, thanks for being on the show, my friend.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Very excited, I'm happy that you took the time. And uh, we were talking before we were on air. You're out here in Los Angeles as well. I hope you're staying safe with all the fires and the smoke and shit.
1: I am. I've, I've had to put off my evening walks though because of the air quality. I'm, I'm hoping I got my little air quality app, and I'm hoping it goes down far enough to to get back out there tonight.
0: Dude, I'm right there with you. I haven't been. I, I just recently ran the. Uh, pandemic started, I bought uh, a bike and I've been out there bicycling and trying to keep my myself from becoming like uh, Francis Ford Coppola, wait.
1: <laughs> of the <a> Hutt. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, but uh, of course, you know, now we're quarantine in quarantine because of the smoke and, uh, and everything else. So it's been pretty crazy the past week. Um, but we've got but,
1: we've got podcasts and filmmaking to keep us busy. Yeah,
0: exactly, dude. Exactly. And that's why I'm excited to have you on the show. And I just want to say, upfront, no bullshit, that I saw Greyhound uh, uh, prior to even talking to the folks that helped me book you on the show, and I was like, thank God this movie's out there, because it just hit a point where uh, I feel like movies just aren't paying things off right now, and movies just seem to have, I don't know, such a social gimmick with everything they're doing, and the thing I really liked about your film was it was incredibly straightforward, it was almost a horror movie, which I really dug. Um, and I just, you know, Tom Hanks is amazing. The whole cast was amazing. The movie just looks fantastic. And I got lost in it.
1: Um, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah.
0: So congratulations for making a fucking good movie.
1: Thanks. I, um, it, it, you know, Tom, as you know, was the right screenwriter and his company and his producing partner, Gary Getzman. Uh, it was an independent film, uh, financed by film nation and then picked up by Sony. So it was even though it kind of looks like your classic Tom Hanks, you know, kind of mid-budget movie, it had mm-hmm. kind of indie roots, and it started with Tom's screenplay, an adaptation of a of a novel called um, The Good Shepherd by C.S. Forrester. Of course, retitled it because Good Shepherd's already been used. Yeah, um, and Tom envisioned it from the start uh, as as just a the perfect ninety minute procedural. Oh. I love it. I think a lot of people would probably understandably so bring expectations to a Tom Hanks World War Two movie. You know, we've had 1917 and there's Saving Private Ryan. And and, um, so there was some serious pressure on us. But but but, you know, what we concentrated on was making a really compelling experiential movie that that just sort of dropped the audience into the pilot house of a World War Two destroyer. At the beginning of forty-eight harrowing hours at sea, in the middle of the Atlantic, you know, moving mm-hmm. through a wolf pack of U-boats, and just letting the audience go go for the ride—that mm-hmm. um, that's what its aspirations were—to just immerse you in the experience and take you along for the for, for the ride. And um, and you know, so so in some ways, maybe it was kind of the perfect little COVID film because it's <laughs> it it's, it comes and goes, and it and it and it doesn't stop um and it's it's his own little self-contained thriller i think and and uh, i'm glad i'm glad you enjoyed it and and yeah. i'm glad to see that apple's been successful with it
0: yeah dude and it's you described it perfectly procedural one of the things that i love love loved about it is that it is so procedure-based um and i love movies where people are physically doing something they need to do stuff in scenes and in movies. There's nothing worse than watching a film or a TV series where people sit around and they talk about what they need to do. (laughs) Right. Uh, And so I really, I think that's what that pulled me in uh, the fastest was how everybody had their specific task, how fascinating these uh, the procedures needed to be in order to have these battleships run at that time period and run successfully at that time period, and how many physical human beings were involved with all these different uh, tasks that were needed to be done you know um, I well, thought yeah. that stuff was really interesting
1: yeah, and that that was the fun of it for me um, because I you know I, I started out in mechanical engineering. I got out of high school with a decent grade point average and and the rhythms of midwestern life at the time kind of push you out of high school and into some, you have to pick a college degree. And I chose engineering. Wow. And, um, about two years into that, uh, I, I got frustrated. I was doing fine, but I got frustrated creatively because I'd mm. always been project oriented growing up. And that's when I sort of, you know, as the story goes, I ran into Billy Crystal down into Florida on a classic family vacation and asked him how to get into special effects, which is what I was kind <laughs> of leaning towards. And he recommended film school, and mm-hmm. next semester I was out at USC. But, um, but I, in that respect, I've always been kind of a mechanical geek. You know, I, yeah. I, you know, the the little details and the and the mechanics and the the puzzles that movies create, uh, the good ones, you know, are are part of the fun. Mm-hmm. For me. Mm-hmm. And so Greyhound was, uh, you know, a really cool challenge in that respect because unless the audience knew. Unless the audience is sort of steeped in how everything works, you can't make drama out of it, right? If you don't understand yeah. the complexity of the way information moves from one part of the ship to the other, uh, you know the scene with the sneeze, for example, where the yep. sneeze interrupts the flow of information at a crucial time in the opening act. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't turn a sneeze into drama unless there's a, a a sacred rhythm to the to the way communication is moving back and forth at such a critical speed. And so job one is I've got to, I've got, that's all got to be palpable for an audience. They've got to understand the way things work before I can make drama out of it. And before, you know, before a bunch of, you know, reports about bips, blips on a radar screen can be effective, right. Mm -hmm. Before the audience can imagine these blips on a radar screen as trouble. They've got to understand what blips on a radar screen mean, right. Mm-hmm. um in their mind's eye. So the movie was full of those kind of challenges and I I'm glad that they um I'm glad that resonated for
0: you. Oh, completely. Completely. There's not I love that stuff. I you know, I grew up uh and I was trained in silent filmmaking and and I've always loved I mean movies to me, and I've talked a hundred times on this show about this movies to me are a visual medium, and I like to see people do things and I like to learn about how things are done by seeing people do things and uh I felt like I ultimately got a lesson in what it was like to get one of those battleships to just turn to get one of those ships to even uh communicate with itself to be able to fire and and uh and I thought that the um the ways that they, the submarines were sort of like uh, maneuvering themselves beyond the point or too close for the guns to be able to hit them. I thought all oh, that stuff was really, really, really great. And the, um, the trick of, of making them into wolves. I thought that wolf pack thing was really cool too. Um, I don't know. I'm very excited about the piece, if you couldn't tell.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, that's what they were actually called wolf packs. They were, they were self nicknamed the U boat captains back to World War I. They really nicknamed them themselves the Wolfpacks.
0: was there something while you were doing this piece like <clears throat> how did you how did you learn the steps like where, you obviously had some sort of consultant there but what was the process because it must be pretty daunting because i'm sure that they, don't, that they don't write out all those details in the script it's just very like minute, very uh yeah. simple descriptions right like how did you What was the process of figuring out all those steps?
1: Well, the first thing you realize is that you're never going to get these ships out on the real water. And, you know, it's a process of elimination, right? In terms of how you're going to pull all this stuff off. And step one was realizing we were going to have to shoot this using visual effects and shooting Mm -hmm. it on land. And uh, then you begin to realize if you've seen the movie, you can kind of break it down into two worlds. There's the world in, you know, that follows, uh, Tom's character Krause around the pilot house, his interactions with his crew and him and his engagement with everything that's going on out there over the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be a 35 day shoot on a film stage uh, in combination with uh, that set matched to a world war II museum ship docked in, you know, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana <laughs> that would stand in <coughs> for the decks and the weaponry that of course we couldn't afford to build. And that those two locations would represent the sort of production, live action production side of the movie as a whole. And Mm -hmm. the other half of this thing would be everything virtual. If you, if you think of it, like, uh, imagine if you will, like you, you have to you know, you're shooting a football movie. The whole movie takes place during one football game Mm -hmm. and Tom Hanks is the quarterback. Right. And you decide that all the players and the receivers on his crew, right. That are going to, in every play of the football game are mm-hmm. going to they're going to come later in post. And you're, you're going to take 35 days and shoot all of Tom Hanks's coverage as a, as the quarterback, but then he's going to throw the ball to virtual players that aren't, that don't exist until post-production. Right. Well, so yeah. before you can um, direct Tom before, you know, before you can, you have to understand the play. And, you know, mm-hmm. you can't direct Tom or shoot him until he, A, understands what the play is, right, and has, has the play in his actor's imagination. Mm-hmm. So that he can, you know, if he sees a, a, a lineman slip through the line coming at him, he's got to react to that. That's virtual. If he's looking for a receiver to the left and then the right and he can't find one and that's a dramatic beat, he's got to know where that those two He's, he needs an eye line for those two beats narratively, right? And then he spots a receiver going long, and that's a third eye line. And mm-hmm. then he's got to throw the ball, and he's got to know whether that's a 20 yard, 30, 40, 50 yard pass. Otherwise, the physics of his arm, right, is the throw is not going to marry up with how far he's throwing it in the digital world later, right? So right. if you think of Greyhound as a bunch of live action photography that is going to get married up with a virtual world later, the first thing you realize is that you have to define that virtual world uh, before you start shooting. And you have to have the means, like a, a, an efficient efficient means of communicating that virtual world to your crew, to your actors, uh, so that you can fill their mind's eye and their imagination with enough information to build a performance. Because if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're engaged with Tom, Tom's character, and if you know, he's the way into the movie, he's the emotional conduit into the whole experience, and if his performance isn't alive with all the reactions to everything out there, and if what's happening out there, the virtual football play itself is not exciting, if it mm-hmm. doesn't have shape, If there isn't like that beat in the football play where you think he's not going to get the football off in time, you know, get the pass off in time. So it isn't just the logistics of how you're shooting it. It's the challenge of making sure that these virtual football plays are exciting enough in themselves that when you rap, get into post and start creating the, the virtual world, that when the two marry up, you end up with a movie that's compelling. Right.
0: Yeah, totally. Now, are you doing a lot of pre-ris for that sort of thing? Or are you doing storyboards for that thing? Like, what, what's your process of prepping that?
1: That's exactly right. So step one was um, define the football plays. And it turned out that the novel, the script was based on. Of course, the script is a much smaller extraction of the novel as, as any of them, as any adaptation mm-hmm. is. So the book had a lot more... Um, Uh, details about positions and ships and description and scenarios that, you know, you couldn't fit into a screenplay. Right. And all the bearings that CS Forrester wrote, all the descriptions, you know, he did his homework too. He didn't just pull these bearings and descriptions. He had, he as a writer was experiencing the same thing. He knew that if he didn't have a battle in mind, if he didn't know where these ships were in his own writer's mind, He couldn't write his dialogue. He couldn't say, turn right now or fire now. He had, he had the same issue. Yeah. Yeah. And it turns out the book, uh, you know, in the text in the book, we could extract all that extra information and go into previs. And we started creating, um, maps with a naval consultant. We extracted all that info onto naval maps and, Hmm. and kind of plotted out what was really going on in these scenes and then those maps were input into, into Maya, into the Previs software right? and using those overhead maps and sailing, you know, each of the ships at real speeds, at real distances, you know, if it's 15 knots, we animated it at 15 knots so that we had kind of an overhead animated expression of the battles in real time. So that no matter what piece of the battle we were, um, shooting, we could, um, orient ourselves to his ship, figure out where to put eye lines. And then everybody would gather around an iPad and by sort of imagining themselves in the cockpit or in the pilot house of the main destroyer could put together for themselves uh, a kind of a tactical awareness of what was basically going on in the, you know, 90 seconds we'd be rolling. And you marry that up with led lights out on the stage to connect their understanding of what's going on to an eyeline. And, you know, by adhering to this overhead map in production and by referencing it whenever an answer was needed in post, you had the sort of spine, you know, had you had this virtual world defined so that even though you'd be shooting them months apart or creating post-vis later on uh, months apart from when you shot it, these overheads in, ensured that the two would marry up, you know, the, that what you did on set was going to marry up with the visual effect and the ship's position and the ship's speed later on in post.
0: It's so cool, man. It's I love this stuff. And it it's incredibly complicated but then as you sort of break it down it starts to become more understandable and then it must be twice as complicated because if you're doing a car scene right and you've got two guys chasing you in a a vehicle and a guy pulls up on the side and in the script it says okay so he turns the car into the other guy trying to push him off the road you simply know that all it takes is inside the car maybe he accelerates and he turns the wheel to the right and pushes the guy but then you have to understand when you're dealing with battleships or ships what it takes to, to turn a ship to the right and what what terminology the captain has to use in the uh, system of command that is going to go through in order to get these specific things done. That, that in itself must have been fascinating. Were you getting that from the book or at that point were you talking to a consultant and like, what do I have to do when the ship turns right? You know well, what, I mean?
1: what you're talking about is really interesting because um, the first thing you realize, you know, a car scene comes with a lot. The audience comes when the audience is watching a car chase, they're mm-hmm. bringing to it a lot of knowledge, right? They understand that there's two lanes in a road and there's opposing traffic, right? We all drive cars. So if you want to mine oncoming traffic for drama, when someone tries to, you know, go out and pass someone with oncoming traffic there, you the audience instantly knows, Oh, he's going to try and pass. You know? Right. And I know right. that oncoming traffic is danger. So the filmmaker can mine that preconceived understanding of traffic and does not have to educate the audience to create a beat of suspense, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to explain how quickly cars move and you don't have to, we all know how quickly a car can sort of swerve back into its original lane. So when you're creating suspense, uh, there's just a whole library of preconceived understanding that Filmmakers yeah. can build on Exactly. So when you're talking about a, a destroyer movie, you know, it, it, in real life, it takes about two minutes for a ship to do a 180 degree turn. It's not <laughs> like fast and furious, right? So, <laughs> Interestingly enough, one of the things I had to decide, you know, I told you we animated those maps at real time mm-hmm. and I would have a scene that describes hard right rudder, you know, bring us around in the other, in the opposite direction. And like a, any good movie, you want to, you want to accelerate that you don't want to spend two minutes turning a ship. You want to accelerate it. <laughs> right, right, right. But, you know, but then if I treat it like a car, right, if I go cut, cut and I'm turned around, um, the audience doesn't know that that took two minutes. Mm. So do you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. uh, but two minutes was enough time for the sub to be in a completely different position because it had two minutes to sail. Right. Right. Well, right, right. It, it, that's just an example of, I think what you're talking about and, and, um, and, and not to mention that, uh, you know, we understand, in a chase scene, there's two lanes at, mm-hmm. and <laughs> two directions at sea. You know, there are no geographical markers. There's no, um, you know, uh, there's nothing to orient you.
0: Right. You just, you, you, you're relying on your compass at that point. You're relying on your positioning. You
1: know, you shoot a scene where a guy walks into his lawyer's office and sits across the desk from him. You know, the lawyer's got a bookcase behind him and the client's got a window behind him. Right.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And you shoot a wide shot and they go, Oh, I get it. We're in a room this, this way, this way. And now I can, the camera can go all over the place with the audience's sort of inherent understanding of two guys seated across from each other at a desk with a background that's unique behind each of them that helps you understand your geography throughout the scene. You take this stuff for granted.
0: Of course. And then there are filmmakers that like a lot of people give Michael Bay a lot of crap for that because he's all jumping all over the place. And like, I don't know where we are at this point. So geography is really important, especially in action sequences, because then you understand where the, where people are and where the threat is coming from.
1: Exactly. And so when you're at sea, you know, with cloudy skies in every direction, um, you don't have that bookcase behind the lawyer. You don't have that window behind the client. to help you orient people? Um, And um, one of the last phases of our post-production was doing a pass where we created some very um, specific and crucial overhead shots that helped audiences understand some of the, uh, you know, Mm. kind of physical placement of the scene so that when we cut back down into the action, because one of the, the other vision Tom had for the film is that it would be a very hyper subjective experience that, you know, when we first set out, we are, the goal was to never leave his point of view and yeah. to try to communicate everything there is to communicate, you know, treat it like a cowboy on a horse. We can shoot the cowboy. We can shoot a close-up of his pistol. We can shoot his horse and the horse's hooves, <laughs> but we can't go up to the top of the desert and shoot the horse in the middle of the desert because that's not a subjective point of view, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the way the mo- it, That really hard discipline is what is the direction we headed in the beginning, and then, um, and we, you know, and, and and it took some real work to help the audience understand positioning when you don't have that ability to jump outside and orient yourself. And but as it turned out, that was you know really well designed, well placed, uh, minimalist amounts of overheads ended up being kind of the solution in a few cases.
0: I find that fascinating because I've run into that too when I direct stuff and I'll I'll set myself up with a, like a set of rules or I'll get really excited about a perspective or a point of view and I'm like this is what I'm going to do and this is going to make it work and then oftentimes you know you spend so much time just sort of pushing that and going now this is the rules this is what we're going to see and this is how we're going to do it and we oftentimes find really great stuff there and we work with it and we do it and we're very excited about it and then it's always when you're after that first cut you know what i mean you do your first pass in the edit room and you're like oh, god damn it <laughs> yeah. i guess we need i guess you need that wide shot
1: <laughs> well you know what you're describing is like it's that's the that's what they hire us for is a point of view right like yeah 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 you and these you're trying to create a language unique to the film that will give the audience a unique experience and mm-hmm. um and that subjective that hyper subjective experience following one man through this horror for 48 hours was really crucial in the end to Making Greyhound work up close, studying every inch of his face during each tactical dilemma and every command dilemma and every moment of self-doubt and between him and the crew Um, that sort of subjective cinematic approach was crucial. Uh, But then, you know, but then the film starts to take shape and the realities take over and you 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 know, you kind of shift. And in other words, I don't think I don't think that shift, that change in plan um, negates, you know, the what you went into it with. Right. It's it's sort of. It's sort of they're complementary.
0: Yeah, I know, because if you hadn't gone into it that way, then you wouldn't have 98 percent of the meat that that is really fantastic. And the tone, which is the most important aspect of it, and that whatever set of rules that you set yourself before you get going, it is to build that tone. It is to try to get that, like you said, that specific point of view. Um,
1: well, you know, writers, writers do the same thing when you think about it. Writers mm-hmm. outline, they have a, an idea for what they want to express and a story they want to tell. But every single writer you talk to will talk about how they sit down and start from a very specific idea, point of view, and a story they want to tell. And, and then suddenly the story wants something different. Mm-hmm. And, and they want, and, and the writer lets the, the good writer, the smart writer, lets the story take a bit of its own path, um, so that you know it's this balance between the goals you have as a writer and letting the creative process evolve a little bit inside of that.
0: Yeah, it's swallowing, mean, swallowing your ego at that point too, which is often. often
1: and I think part. the same thing applies to physically making a movie. You have to go at it with a. Point of view and a and a goal and um, and a plan, but you also have to stay open to what you learn along the way. And, mm-hmm. and uh, but you're right, if you don't go into it with with a passionate idea for what you want it to be, um, it's uh, there's no point of view um, at all, and you don't end up you know, you don't end up with anything. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, Uh, now's the time, you know it. Now's the time to give some thanks, to give some love and thanks to uh, the sponsors, the people that make this show possible. And let's see, while we're here, let's see if I can do, let's do some live music mixing, Liam. Let's see, we'll do a little bit of this. There we go. So, first up, our good buddies over at Puget Systems. If you're a filmmaker, photographer, If you're a video gamer, if you're someone that is just tired of your computer not being fast enough and you realize that it is time to buy a new computer, it's time to get something that'll do the job for you and you don't wanna go to one of the normal manufacturers that are just gonna charge you an arm and a leg for it, right? I mean, there's nothing worse than being in debt to gear that is outdated and you're still paying the bill on it. So why not go and buy yourself a PC? Now, PCs just aren't the cheaper option PCs are a smarter option because You can customize them with the hardware to specifically do what it is that you want to do So they oftentimes they're faster and they're less expensive because there's a competition in the hardware market for it So build yourself a PC. Now. I know the idea of building your own PC can be a scary thing. Don't worry I've done the work for you I found a company when I was looking for new PCs that would not only put together a machine that fit my budget but they also had a great unboxing experience essentially they'll put it in a box they'll ship it to you you take it out of the box you turn it on and it works perfectly and these guys have fantastic customer support right so you're not apple care what is apple care i literally can call these guys and get them on the phone that's huge i know from people my age are like yes breathing a sigh of relief for you young folks are like oh god i gotta talk to somebody yeah it's fine they're cool people they love you guys Do yourself a favor, go to PugetSystems.com, check out their computers. You can buy a system based upon the software you use. They'll give you like a baseline package. You can start there, and then they like to communicate with their customers so you can actually have something custom built. Right? How cool is that? Go to PugetSystems.com and buy your new PC. Uh, Also returning is our good buddies from Quasar. Quasar Science, one of the best advancements in the movie business over the past 10 years has been LED lighting technology. Uh, not only are they using LED lighting technology to do amazing backdrops on the Mandalorian, but you're also using really amazing tech to light their subjects. We're talking about lights that don't run as hot, lights that are cooler at temperature, lights that can dial in any sort of color temperature that you need, right? They have a smaller footprint, they don't require as much power, They don't require as much crew to use them. So a lot of folks are like, Mike, what do you have in your kit? I have a lot of Quasar Science tubes. I've got some bi-color tubes. I have a rainbow LED tube set up. Uh, I love these guys. They've been a big supporter of the show. So if you're looking to buy some new equipment, if you just want to keep up on what's going on with LED technology and lighting, go to quasarscience.com and check it out. Okay, so also what I was saying at the beginning of the episode, Today is the last day. Tomorrow, today, and tomorrow are the last two days that you can buy t-shirts to support the show. And I've been begging you guys, pick these up now because they're limited. I know you're gonna be cry in five months from now when you see a bunch of people running around with a Love of the Process t-shirt and you're like where the fuck can I buy these? You didn't buy them when they're available. They're available right now, man. Go to inloveoftheprocess.com, click on the merch link, and there you can purchase one of your t-shirts. It's a long sleeve t-shirt. Uh, It's an amazing shirt with the logo down the sleeve plus the storyboard design that I drew on the front of it. Uh, There's a short sleeve version of that and there's also the 12 cam version of that. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, those of you who buy a shirt, all you have to do is send me an email with your confirmation code and say, hey, I'd like to see 12 cam and I will send it to you for free. Okay? So uh, think about that. Anyway, enough about the ads. Thanks for sticking through the reads. It is time. Let's get back into the interview with Aaron. It's like, I love this, man. I love what, I love what we're getting into. The thinking about um because the movie i mean tom hanks is tom hanks he's amazing and like all he has to do all he has to do really is like stare off next to the camera and you're just completely engrossed that must have been very relaxing to be able to do a close-up of him and have it be almost as powerful as the 3d animation of ships you know what i mean
1: oh yeah I, i remember there was one moment um because you get you get you know you're working with Tom and there I went through this when I worked with Bill Murray and Robert Duvall on my first feature there are moments yeah, the set yeah, yeah. where they're where they're just the guys helping you make a movie right and then there's little moments where you're reminded oh my god that's Tom Hanks or oh my god that's Bill Murray <laughs> um and I, I had one of those somewhere in about day 3 or 4 in a close up of Tom reacting to a ship exploding and I went, okay. Well, there, there's why he's a movie star, right there. Look at that, you know. And and you're reminded um, what what you know what a star brings to the storytelling process. But so yeah, it's like. Uh, and I remember also when I made my first short film as a writer director, when I was uh, I put my life savings into a short film. Mm-hmm. was a cinematographer as an attempt of steering my career towards directing and I put my own money into it so it was a real budgetary struggle but I but it starred a nine-year-old boy that I cast who was wonderful and uh, and we get into our at the end of every day we'd all get a drink and and start you know freaking out over all of our budget problems and our um and all the limitations and all the nightmares that we had been through and we had to deal with the next day and But we always used to have a saying, you know, at least we have Jonathan, because we knew that the movie was about this nine year old boy. And we knew that that's what that's really all that mattered is what he was going to bring to the role of the story we were telling. Yeah, you got to deal with all that other stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, it's about a close up of Tom Hanks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, that's why oftentimes they say casting is king and casting is the main job of a director is making sure that you get that person. And for me, whenever I'm casting, I'm always looking for that person that doesn't have to be saying anything. Someone that could just be breathing in that frame and that person that I'm that I'm fascinated just to see doing anything, whether it's eating a sandwich or, you know, like taking their hat off. You know, like I love that stuff. That's what makes
1: movies. You know, there's other things like that, too, that can have that power there's locations that have that power Mm -hmm. um you know what i mean where uh, visuals can do that too i think um cutting you know cutting to a raid a sonar operator with all that amazing equipment or um
0: yeah
1: or seeing a five inch gun swivel around 30 degrees and line up on a target you know that's what movies are right they're just a collection of these really cinematic, compelling things one after another. Um, Certainly Tom, Tom Hanks and movie stars bring that to the screen, but (laughs) but that's that's really kind of what we're doing. We're trying to mine all the things that make movies um, fun to look at so that everything is holding the screen, you know, that something's happening or you feel something that's keeping the audience engaged.
0: You know, this is why I think you and I are going to get along. Spoken like a true cinematographer. <laughs> because
1: well, at the end what, of the day,
0: it's that, you know?
1: You know those, you know what I love? You know what my favorite part of a movie is? Hmm. The first, like, two minutes of a movie. Like, a, or the first 90 seconds of a movie or a television show. Mm-hmm. You, could, you could cut just about any images you want, right, together over music with titles for a minute, minute and a half. And the audience will be riveted. Yeah. Right? It's true. It's true. Even though your story hasn't begun, you know, that little period before that everyone's kind of settling into their chair at the theater or they're settling into the couch at home mm-hmm. and the world, you know, you could just about cut anything together. I remember one time I went to a friend's director's cut screening. Uh, and we were all, we didn't know each other. So everyone's sitting there quiet a conversation because <laughs> it was a disparate bunch of people and, uh, the director's dog was in there it was a scoring stage where the screen was happening. The director's big golden retriever was lumbering around down below the screen, you know, where the, they have the ping pong table. Yeah. 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 And you're mixing. So the dog was kind of, and everyone was seated facing the screen and facing this dog and everyone was quiet and um no one was talking and all of a sudden the dog got up and walked across the bottom of the screen over to his water bowl and started drinking water <laughs> and you know the sound the dogs make when they lap up water and instantly the whole audience the, everyone in the seats laughed
0: <laughs> weird
1: right because it's funny you're you're sitting there waiting for a movie to start in that moment where you're open to anything right and you're just looking for something to engage with and you're an audience. You're a primed audience, and and right in the middle of that vibe, the dog walks across, and goes <laughs> slurp, 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 and everybody broke out laughing. And I remember thinking, you know, audiences so are so ready to be entertained. They're so they just they're just sitting there waiting for you to uh, to give them something to to laugh about, or to cry about, or to smile about, or get excited about. And then of course the movie starts and you're in you know, you're into a you gotta keep you gotta keep up in the game. Yeah. You know, that's the challenge of movies. But I've always kind of loved that magical first minute or two in movies where the sky's the possibility. It's like, you know, the beginning you go to go see the next Star Wars movie and you see the Lucas film, right?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. You have no oh, yeah.
1: idea what's coming. Yeah, yeah. But you're like in that moment when you see a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, it's just the possibilities are infinite.
0: It's, a, it's fascinating because I never really thought about that. And it, I guess while you're speaking about it, I was thinking about what I think, of, like what I would refer that to. And, and for me, it's almost like when you go to a stranger's house, like when you go to someone's house and you walk in there for the first time and you're sort of looking around and you're feeling the atmosphere, you're feeling the vibe and everything's kind of exciting because you don't know what who this person really is or how they decorate their things, or what the house smells like. And yep. it is a very exciting point of a movie. It's It's a fucking fascinating thought.
1: And you can cut to anything, man. Like you could cut and there's a beetle walking down the street, right? right. You're like, oh man, there's a beetle. Or, I don't know what the hell that is, but that's a cool beetle. And then you cut to something else and you, I don't even know what any of this means yet, but I'm, but you know, I'm willing to learn. Yeah. There's something magical about that, that first, uh, those first moments up on the screen, I think.
0: Ah, oh, it's so cool. And it's it's obvious, like I, like I mentioned, uh, as a cinematographer. So you, that's how you got into the business, right? You started as a cinematographer.
1: Yeah, I went to film school. I, you know, I, I told you I came out of engineering and transferred as an undergrad from mechanical engineering out to USC's film school. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I I thought I was really into. i had read, read, been reading Cinefex magazine, and I thought maybe I'd find a career in what what then was called special effects. <laughs> um, and I was an ILM geek and there was a class that just happened faithfully happened just the first semester I was there that was about special effects and it was being taught by a man named Mark Vargo who was the optical printer lineup guy on Return of the Jedi
0: really okay cool, cool.
1: And, and so he was able with his relationships to bring in the Richard Edlund's and the Dijkstra's and the Phil Tippett's and the like everybody I was reading about in Cinefix did Mm -hmm. every week, did a guest lecture and every, and uh, I was a real hammers and nail nails kind of kid. And, uh, but every, at the end of every lecture, each of these guys would say the future is computers. And I'd go, Oh man, I don't (laughs) want to do stuff on computer. You know, I just got out of computers and it, you know, programming computers i don't want anything to do with computers i want to do hammers and nails you know i want to shoot models against green screen right and that's when i started that's when i discovered cinematography they had another class uh that again was kind of a one and done at that point called reflections sponsored by panavision where Mm. a famous cinematographer would come in the night prior to the class screen one of their films their recent films and then the next day we'd We'd pick a scene that was easy enough to recreate on the stage with, you know, three set walls and some minimalist uh, art direction mm-hmm. to make the location in the movie. And that cinematographer would recreate the exact lighting um, oh, in really the movie. cool.
0: Yeah, that's rad, man. That's really cool.
1: And the first cinematographer was Jordan Cronweth, who'd shot Blade Runner, and he brought a movie <laughs> called Peggy Sue Got Married. Yeah, huh? So, uh-huh. you know, talk about the right way to be introduced to cinematographer. My first teacher was Jordan Cronenweth. So he's, he set up the scene in the basement um, uh, where Peggy Sue and Nicolas Cage come down and there's one single beam of light coming through the window.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, The
1: yeah. window. And the reason he picked the scene is because there was no fill light. And he said, Francis Copeland, I staged the scene so that whenever we needed light on one of their faces we would stage it so that the opposite actor would step into the beam of light and the light would bounce off their shirt into the other person's face and then they would step away and that person would fall in the shadow so in other words the lighting and the staging of the actors the actors were lighting themselves
0: yeah totally cool
1: and i remember thinking oh my god this is insane this is amazing and, um, Jordan was such a nice man and, and he was so meticulous, uh, just a consummate craftsman, uh, to watch him, you know, he didn't like, there were a few paint cans in the background he didn't like. So he was sending people across the room to twist the paint cans until he got just the right. And it was one of those moments where you go, okay, I get it. I, I get how that I get. cinematography."
0: <laughs> right. And then you were hooked.
1: And so, yeah, I came out. And uh, put a reel together, shot a really stupid low-budget feature called Dead Girls. <laughs> 16 millimeter. went straight to three-quarter tape. Um, <laughs> and then lucked my way into uh, music videos. My first video was with F. Gary Gray. Oh, no kidding. Who had who had just sort of kind of made a name for himself with Ice Cube's uh, Today Was a Good Day. Mm-hmm. And we did a Cypress Hill video together, and that started my... Uh, about a three or four year run in music videos. The last of which Gary and I did was this huge $8 million Dre and ice cube video where we decided to shoot it in anamorphic and letterbox it. This was back before anybody (laughs) else was doing letterboxing their videos.
0: Sure. Yeah. 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 We
1: both wanted to create something on our reels that looked like a feature so we could get the hell out of music videos. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And fair enough. That nice. that video is what caught the eye of Charlie Hayde who was directing a Steven Bochco pilot. Who you know, Steven Bochco was the king of television at the time. That, he did
0: like NYPD Blue, right? Was that him? That yeah, that?
1: L.A. Law, NYPD Blue, and yep. Doogie Howser, and um, and um, and I then and I and I and they, you know, in fa- in fact, um, Bing Sokolsky... Along with Greg Hoblet, created that shaky cam vibe for NYPD Blue. If you remember that, mm-hmm. yes, and totally. That being as a young cameraman and and that sort of visual approach, which was brand new to television, is what created the opportunity for me as like a 29 year old music video cinematographer to um, wedge my way into the cream of the crop television.
0: Mm-hmm. They
1: started to see how younger cinematographers doing all this new work could bring eyeballs to TV shows. And that all started with Bing Sikolsky on NYP Blue. And that's how I got my break in television. That led to features. And then um, that's when I decided after a few features I decided to make my short film and 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 move into directing.
0: It's interesting because I I forget because I I remember watching NYPD Blue as a as a young uh, kid or as a teenager and being totally fixated on it and it was that they were changing the visual style uh, of television especially like cop dramas and, and dramas on TV with that shaky cam stuff which was a big thing I forgot about that that's yeah. fascinating. Um, and then it's thus gone on to do like every fucking show does that shit at this point. That coverage is like so baked into television. But Well, you know, it, I think it where
1: it started it was, who was that commercial director who was doing the Levi's 501 blues in the 80s? Um, um, it wasn't,
0: Fincher wasn't doing those. It was, oh, man, um,
1: this is way before Fincher.
0: Uh, oh God, not I'm not going to remember.
1: I want to say not doctor. Uh, anyway, there was a you know, a preeminent, you know, kind of commercial director who was using that shaky camp vibe mm-hmm. to sell blue jeans, 501 blue jeans, and it, and it caught fire in the advertising world. And it was, you know, kind of verite, handheld, exaggerated, handheld, mm-hmm. where the camera bought a bunch of energy. And um, because it was the streets of New York, that's where director Greg Hoblet decided to kind of bring that aesthetic into a cop show to give it that earthy on the streets vibe. Um, I can't imagine. I I can't, I doubt handheld even had a place in the world in television before that. Maybe it did for a chase scene or something, but
0: yeah, but but not really the
1: whole thing. I don't think so.
0: Yeah. When you think about it and then maybe, I mean, I'm sure they used some of it. I'm trying to remember specifically, but I'm sure in film they were obviously using it, like French Connection and all that sort of thing. I'm sure that that was references for those guys. But um, yeah, no, it's wild because before that, you know, television was pretty locked down and pretty standard. Maybe some dolly stuff. Maybe uh, Leslie Decker. Leslie ah,
1: D E K T O R for anyone listening. Google some Leslie Decker commercials, and you'll see the uh, visual origins that nypd blue kind of brought into narrative television
0: it's crazy it's crazy to think about that stuff too it's because now like i said it's it's the formula like it's essentially that formula that runs through any sort of dramatic show right now you're watching any of the marvel shows you're watching any of that stuff it's just like let's get that handheld coverage
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a lot of you know it's funny uh Every time a new technology comes out, there's a period of about a year, year and a half where everyone goes nuts with it before mm-hmm. they finally calm down. Every time I watch The Graduate, uh, I'm reminded of how the Zoom lens had just come out. Yes. Um, for example.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: And they did some really clever things with it. But, you know, the Zoom is, you know, Coppola, uh, you, you know, that famous Zoom at the beginning of Godfather. Mm-hmm. Was a much more tasteful use of new technology, right? A computerized zoom where they it took two minutes for them to zoom out of the the guy's face, the opening the opening uh, speech there. Oh, totally, but, uh, yeah. But you see that you see where either a fad or technology kind of like right now. There's a lot of teal and orange in the color correction of movies. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, very. Uh... The, uh, once again, I'm going to mention him. the uh, Michael Bay color, the processing.
1: You yeah, know I mean? yeah. Yeah. And, and um, there's even videos online, you know, get your free Da Vinci copy and learn how to do the teal and orange Hollywood look. <laughs> uh, and all that's, all that's going to do 10 years from now is date is make a movie look ridiculous. You know, it's going to yeah. remember the electronic claps in eighties music. Electric- um, yes yeah
0: yeah 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 like the clap beats yeah, 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 that, yeah
1: that's all teal and orange is gonna be 10 15 <laughs> years from now it's an 80s clap you know since synth- synthesized clap um you know you gotta
0: it's funny when you look at those fads too because there was that whole period after uh fight club and the matrix where everything was like green and yeah. then everything had that sort of bleach bypass vibe for quite some time in the early 2000s late 90s and then you had like the The Underworld Blues. Uh, It's funny how we just sort of gravitate. Someone puts something out that affects you on such a visceral level that everybody's like, I can fucking do that. And they just run after it.
1: Well, Um, it's the film school aesthetic. It's that period in your career. And if there are film students listening, I would encourage them, you know, to resist, uh, you know, and I did it too when I was starting out. You know that feature film, that horror film, Dead Girls I told you about? Mm -hmm. Uh I'd just seen Tucker and I was a big Vittorio Storaro fan (laughs) and Storaro was all about golden backlight and color. And so, uh, I shot a horror movie that looked like Tucker with golden. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So I was in that phase of my life and my career where I was, where you're trying to imitate instead of, um, create. Right. And everybody goes through that phase. Um, and, even inside the industry, uh, people give in to imitate instead of create um, because there are some immediate payoffs. You know, mm-hmm. you can make your movie look like an Avengers movie or a Michael Bay movie if you go teal and orange. And sure, I'll take it. You know, I'll put that in my back pocket. I'll I'll take it. But you're you're really just limiting yourself. Um, and so, for film students out there, I would, you know, there's nothing wrong with with uh, using something that you love or that you see as a starting point just to sort of bring yourself into you know to teach yourself how people do what you see on the screen but then, sure. yeah. but that's just that's just the means to the end you, you know, he, there's lots of interviews with Gordon Willis who shot The Godfather where he said after he after The Godfather yellow period film, films broke out like the plague <laughs> and, you know time the Godfather, brassy yellow. And, um, at the end of the day, um, the real artists out there, you know, like the bleach bypass thing, that was Spielberg saying, I want my war film to look like newsreel footage. Yeah. And when, you know, and when he's done trying to, you know, and that was for that movie. Um, um, you know, it's, in other words, it sprung from the story instead of, being applied like a paint of coat uh, a coat of paint on top of of something
0: right 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 and it's so funny how a lot of folks that are especially young people in the business because I you know I suffered from it when I was younger too especially doing music videos um, it's funny how we are drawn to that stuff and I think I think there are two different ways to look at it one like you were saying I believe that uh, there's a language of cinema and there's a hundred plus years language of cinema where if you use a 50 millimeter lens it means something if you use a long lens it'll mean something to an audience just because of what's come before that because of the history of understanding that when you do a forced zoom or a or, or push zoom that does something to the audience so if you can understand that language and you can examine that language and if you watch a scene and go why do I fucking feel this way and you watch it again and you go oh because of this and this and this you then what you should do if you want to practice that technique, practice that technique, figure out how to works and figure out how to make that work for you, but then just put it in your toolbox, put it in, in that kit of yours that you're going to go to later when it's like, Hey, I, I really want to have this emotional impact. What would I use for this thing? And oh, I remember when in this movie they were using a lens specific to this, or they cut with this and there was a really good music cue. Maybe that's a good place to start. And then like what we were saying earlier with the writers, and with uh, directing, where you start that way, but then let the movie tell you, like dictate. Hey, you know what? Don't just try to recreate that Spielberg shot. Maybe you're using that lens, but here's what the narrative is. T- this is the direction that the narrative is taking me on. This is the direction that the energy, of the actors, is taking me on. Uh, maybe I go that way with it. You know what I mean?
1: I do. Um, it's letting the it's letting the story drive the creative cre- creative ideas instead of Totally forcing an idea onto a story. Um, and everybody, you know, that's the challenge of, of being an artist is that, yes, there are, you know, if you're a writer, you know, people share the same words to tell stories. How are you going to use them to tell your story? (laughs) Uh, What order are you going to put your words in? What, what style of writing? The, The words are all the same. Um, but what are you going to do with them? Um, and, um, and that's the, ch- that's the challenge. That's where we all, you know, and he, the irony is that anybody starting out in film that wants to make a success of themselves needs to understand first and foremost, that, that, um, you'll, you'll never succeed being a guy who can, um, do what everyone's done before. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time you're trying to emulate something that's already been done, you're you're not the guy who's coming up. You're not the guy who's innovating anymore. You're the guy who's um, emulating instead of innovating. And and the movie business, entertainment media business has been really democratized. Lots of people with cameras and YouTube channels and yeah, and um, and so you have to find your voice and uh, you're never going to find a unique voice that's of unique value um to anyone who wants to hire you unless you're bringing unique ideas into the world and you're not going to get that by, you know, plastering teal and orange on your short film. It's to <laughs> happen. Um I guess maybe, you know, uh you know, I'm ex- I'm obviously teasing, I'm exaggerating. Um But it's true,
0: dude, it's, it's, you're, you know, I'll take the blunt of this. It's true. (laughs) Like be smart about, be smart about what it is that you're doing. And look, I know a big portion of it for a lot of people listening right now is insecurity. And like, we'll just, we'll stare right at, at that in the room here. It's insecurity.
1: Well, it's also the desire to be part of the community. Like, oh, this is what people are doing. And this is what true the state of the art. And I want, and I, I want to feel like I'm part of what everyone is experimenting with now. So I'm going to experiment with it too. Right. True. It's Um, very true. It gives you a sense of belonging. Uh, my, my teal and orange short looks like something else. Cool. I feel like I'm part of everything, right? Because my work overlaps with other people's work. And, um, but the irony is that that's not the way you succeed in this business is you, you overlap with too many people. And everyone you're overlapping with, uh, is, is your competition, you know, and how you are going to distinguish yourself from everyone else? You need a really unique point of view. Um, and that's scary because you're out on your own, you're out on a limb and you don't feel like you're part of the community. You don't feel like you're doing what everyone else is doing. And you think, wow, I'm so far outside of what everyone's doing. How could I, how could anyone ever invite me in? (laughs) Um, because I'm trying, I have different ideas. I think there's a different way to do these things. And um, in the long run, maybe in the short run, because frankly, one of the ways I was able to succeed when I started shooting videos was to, you know, to do a lot of the things everyone was doing, you know, Ooh, there's a cool fan in in the warehouse. Why don't we put a backlight behind the fan? And we, (laughs) I I did all that stuff. Um, And there's nothing wrong with caving in here and there, especially if, that's what you're being hired to do If somebody's hiring you because, and they want the work you're doing to fall into a certain genre, then you're obligated to sort of play inside those, that sandbox. But, but if you're out there writing a screenplay or trying to come up with a YouTube channel or a short film that stands out, or if you're a cinematographer um, and you don't want your, you know, and you can, you have enough, experience to convince the director to try something that's what i did that gary gray video i told you got my first break on in television Mm -hmm. i i I drove over to gary gray's house with a laser disc player and uh, blade (laughs) runner and i plugged it into his tv and i said i want to show you something called anamorphic lenses (laughs) now back then tvs were one three three right so i turn on blade runner and it's this sliver two four oh sliver of image Slicing across a square television set, right? Yep. And he's like, Whoa, that's cool, but that's like that's really letterboxed. And I'm like, Yeah, how friggin' cool is that if our whole video like how would you know that you know and uh and, and I explained that anamorphic lenses squeeze the image and you get to use the whole negative and you know, so our our telecine, you know, our film to video transfer will be super beautiful because we'll be using the entire negative to yeah, you know and and he's like all right let's do it let's do this let's 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 go for it and you know and um that's what got me my first television show because it because we took a chance and we did something that that was see for anyone who remembers videos will remember countless videos where all of the r&b and rap stars one of their videos to look like mini movies
0: mm-hmm. yep it's R&B. a big thing
1: but we did this before any of that you know R&B and rap was still, you know, it was considered um, in poor taste if your video had any slickness.
0: Right. You're supposed to be still gritty of the streets. Yeah. You're supposed
1: supposed to be kind of like, you know, you don't want to sell out. Um, Right. The look of the video can't sell out because these artists are of the people and of the streets. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that aesthetic would be forbidden. And, and so what, you know, we were pretty much the first to do it in the R&B and the rap world. This was hardcore rap too. This is.
0: Yeah, no. Yeah. For that time, for sure. And I remember the video, I remember the video, man. I remember, the way it looked. And, and because I, you know, we talked a bit before we started recording. Yeah. I also started in music videos too. And there was a period, you, it, it's a battle, especially when you're directing with these artists and these artists are so embedded in their own genre, like these sub genres. And we were doing a lot of metal and hardcore music, and that stuff had its own. Like, it's like the, all those guys watched Fight Club and they were just like, it, there needs to be swinging fluorescent lights in every one of our videos. And you're just like, oh my God, kill me.
1: I got a, I got a, I got a Foo Fighters video once because the director and filmmakers liked something in my feature, my first feature, Kiss the Girls with Morgan Freeman.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep.
1: The video, if anyone listening, you know, Google Foo Fighters, um, was the name of it? Um,
0: Which one is it?
1: Foo Fighters, I'm... It was the one for uh, The X-Files.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, fuck, what was the name of that one?
1: Hold on. Uh, walking After You.
0: That's right. So, that was and, a great track. Yeah. So anyone
1: listening, uh, Google Foo Fighters Walking After You. And the aesthetic, it was directed by a fashion photographer. And the aesthetic has nothing to do with... uh <laughs> girl's... <laughs> um, that's why I got hired. Um, it's funny. I remember yeah. an agent telling a story about how an agent, commercial agent, who used to rep Alan Davio who shot, you know, ET empire of the sun mm-hmm. um, for Spielberg. And um, he, the agency called up wanting him to shoot a commercial that had ice cream and wanted to know whether he had ice cream on his demo reel. And uh, I, the agent tells the story. She said, yes. And then they said, Uh, But is it strawberry? Right. So you have all these stories where and this goes to how a big part of the industry is all about. Have you done what everything else everyone has done before and we need you to have done it before we'll hire you to do it. And that's one side of the coin. And the other side is long term. If you don't distinguish yourself somehow. You'll just you'll you'll just tread water forever.
0: Right, you'll be the strawberry ice cream guy. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's it's so great to actually hear you say that cuz there've been so many times as a director and as a photographer myself where I would get those calls and people would call me and say, "Hey, um, you know, can you do sneakers?" and you're like, "Yeah." you know what i mean it's like it's like someone asking you if you can do sneakers you're like i did a world war ii submarine movie i can do fucking sneakers (laughs) you know and so you get that phone call and then they're like yeah but have you done red sneakers And, and and then it just occurs to you especially in the current um industry right now where a lot of these um creative directors can literally walk down the walmart of of cinematographers and just go like uh all right. So I'm looking for a guy that's done a uh, very specific red sneakers and done this and done this with a specific camera. And they get, there's so many people out there that they can go through and just pick that person out specifically. So it's the competition is insane right now for like getting into the business.
1: Well, yeah. there's a difference between like, send us your car guys, right. And send us sneaker guys that have done red sneakers. Obviously, uh, there are parts. There are specializations, right?
0: Sure, um, sure.
1: I don't mean to d- diminish the fact that there are areas of expertise in our business. Um, if you haven't shot a lot of cars, a lot of sheet metal, um, an agency would rightly be nervous because it's a very specialized kind of photography. Yes. Um, but then, it, then it get. But then it can also get ridiculous, and that's part of the the game is is, um, yes, it's an industry where they, they want to know that you have, you can do what they're hiring you to do, but then it, it can also get stupid.
0: Yeah, no, and you're, you're completely right. And we should, we should really point that out that, yeah. you know, if you're using specialty equipment, if you're, if you have experience, uh, actually doing some of these techniques like car photography in general, it's like such a massive, just lighting vehicles is such a trade on its own. And so, especially if you're getting into the commercial business, and it's all about money, and you don't want to have someone on set that's learning how to do it while you're doing it. For yeah, that, a, certain,
1: a certain amount of this stuff is a reality. Like, uh, you know, if you're going to go out and shoot a 25-day low-budget feature, mm-hmm. do you, you know, do you, as as much as you might admire the guy who shot Mission Impossible is he the right guy to crank out a 24 day feature with all of its inherent limitations and sketch right. challenges. And, and in some cases, uh, a cinematographer would say, yes, I'm, you know, I, I can, I can adopt the right work ethic and attitude to help you make your cool little movie. And I would, I would make an extra effort to, you know, uh, but you know, so there's also, what kind of managerially, right. It takes a different kind of, um, Mm -hmm. like to crank out back when I was shooting television, we were shooting eight pages a day. Um, and I was, you know, I was striving to, um, to, to get feature quality photography on the screen. When we had eight pages to shoot a day, you know, we would shoot an hour of television in eight days. That's the equivalent to a 16 day feature
0: it's crazy.
1: Um, and, um, uh, that's a special skill, you know, and, and, and even your crew that's working for you has to have a different level of, um, intensity or uh, different kind of toolbox of shortcuts, different levels of compromise. Um, and so that's part of it too. Uh, you know, you'll, you have to show producers and studios that you can live in the world. They're going to put you in. Mm-hmm. But, um, but again, the, the, the overall subject being there's a big difference between um, specialty and special skills inside what you're doing. And, um, and some of the attitudes out there that you got, it's like, I need the, I need to see the strawberry ice cream or I'm not going to give you the job.
0: Right. Right. I have to go shoot your commercial before you can hire me to shoot your commercial. Yeah.
1: But all but all of this is to say is that this energy, like you having to have done it before to get the job, is mm-hmm. in direct conflict with what in the long term is gonna make you successful, which is doing things differently. Right. And shaking it up and finding a way to get noticed outside of what everyone's cranking out um, that's the battle it's in, you know, that's the battle in your career is you got to follow the rules here and there, and then you got to go break them over there enough to, um, to make yourself to show something special.
0: Right. Yeah. And then you have to, you actually, it's, it's always interesting with me as a director where I find that when I go off and I, and I play, so like if I go off and I make my own thing and, and I find, I finance both of my shorts and when I can finance things, I'm the boss. So I can go off and do whatever I want. So I get to go and do the crazy stuff that I've been imagining. I'm not really listening to anybody do or listening to anybody uh, direct me in a specific way. And so then I can go play, play. Uh, And what I find happens is as I play, I make this thing, it's dangerous. You don't know if it's gonna work or not. You do it and it comes out, It's, it's great. And you're like, this thing's fucking awesome. And then you put that thing out. And then for the next three years, people are trying to hire you for that specific thing that you've done. Right. You know, and I, like I, you mentioned that you had to finance your own short film in order to get yourself transitioned from being a cinematographer into directing. Correct. Right?
1: Yeah. I knew there was a, an invisible glass wall, uh, between directing and, and cinematography that you have to crash through. Um, and, uh, people, you know, people, no question cinematographers are storytellers and very sensitive to the job of directing and the two jobs overlap a lot mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but um, the industry perceives the two jobs as very different like I always felt I never brought anything I brought the same taste and the same eye to my feet first feature as director that I did to my first show as you know like when I was shooting i w- I would watch the performance and I would And when I felt wrong to me, you know, I would talk to the director and, and because until it felt like it was on its feet as a movie, I was kind of stifled as a cinematographer because I I wasn't really just a guy lighting the shot. I was filmmaker. Uh, You know, I was a little bit full of myself and I was thinking, you know, um, this has to be, the whole thing has to be right before my work can begin. Um, and of course, nine times out of 10, I was working with such great directors that, you know, they create something, and it would be inspiring and then I'd go straight to work. But whenever it didn't feel like it was working, it stifled me. And so then when I started directing, I, I didn't really feel like the sense, the sense, the, um, the sensibility I brought to directing wasn't that different than shooting, but but that's from my point of view, from the industry's point of view. They they think it's two different jobs completely. And I've got to go out and prove myself that, you know, I can direct an actor and and set up a shot and call action and call cut, um, and you know, uh, tell a story as a director. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you're managing industry expectations and industry perception and you're doing battle with it is really what kind of what we're talking about. It's like, ah, oh, I want to shoot a car commercial. I actually did a spec. I, I I rented a Fisher light and a turntable and I put a Lexus under a Fisher light when I was in my late twenties. Cause I wanted to do a spec car commercial and see if I could break into sheet metal and right. car photography. And so I was, I recognized how the industry worked. It's like, oh, you have to have done it before to get, to get the job. So the only way to jumpstart that is to do it myself and pay for it and hope that that, Gets me through the glass wall. That glass wall. Um, that commercial ended up helping me get a lot of work, but I never got into car work. Um, but that was, you know, that's you rolling the dice. It's like ah, I'll try this. I'll see if I can break through this glass wall and fool everybody. And then you know, you're look. You're basically trying to cowboy your way into an opportunity that on paper you don't deserve yet.
0: <laughs> right, right. And sometimes that works. Sometimes you, sometimes yeah. you make it. But then sometimes you run into that person that's like, you don't know what you're doing. You're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Not yet. (laughs) And and, and by the
1: way, uh, I emulated the style of sheet metal photography everyone else was doing. So I broke my own rule, right? I wasn't, Mm -hmm. I was, but I wasn't to the point yet where I could then make a name for myself as a car shooter. The first job was just getting into the world. Now, Mm -hmm. had I gotten into that world, then I'd be responsible for, for distinguishing myself inside that world somehow so there's a point being there's a difference you know I don't want everyone out there to think that that by you know that emulating what everyone else is doing is 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 wrong 100% of the time you right. have you have to trick the system by by doing what everyone else is doing in car shooting that might have you know broken me into the world of of car photography and I've tricked the system with its own gag, you know, with its own rules. And then, but then when I, once I'm inside there, if I want to continue to be successful, I've got to become a very unique kind of car shooter to build a career on it, right?
0: Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating because I learned this when I got, when I started getting repped by commercial companies, like production companies as a director. And so, you, what they, any rep, whether you're talking about your agent or your management or you're talking about, a commercial company rep, they are completely dependent upon you creating a reason for them to sell you all the time. Yep. Like uh, there's a big misconception that when you get repped, then that's when I get the phone calls and I can make choices. No, those guys are still calling, or if you're lucky, they're calling you. Those guys are still waiting for you to send them the new thing that you're excited about and the new thing that you're doing. And I remember very similarly trying to get into different avenues of commercials as a director. And so because we came up through uh, music videos and we came up through the rock and roll world and the heavy metal world uh, was very much known as like a dangerous director because the subject material was very dangerous. And so for a period of time, I'm like, well, I can do fucking diaper commercials or I can do any of this stuff. And so I was attempting to shoot stuff that would work in that world. And I would get two different sides from the production company. They would say, just shoot something safe, which essentially meant just emulate something else, like emulate so that we can put that on our reel. So that way when this job comes down the pike and there's a new carpet commercial, you know how to shoot carpet commercials. And so for quite some time, I was just doing that. I was trying to emulate someone else's work. My passion really wasn't in it, but it was like, I got to do this because I got to get more work. And so I was doing that for a little while, and then I found that that really wasn't getting me more work. I think maybe I got a job once in a while, but it was always like, so-and-so's not available, so you can do it, but at half the price because you don't have as much experience.
1: But then in the middle of this, you probably look over across the company, and some some young guy went out and shot a commercial with his iPhone and it's all the rage and AT&T wants him for a package of 10 spots.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: It's like, Oh my God, he he shot a commercial on his iPhone. Look at this. It's amazing. And now he, and now this guy's off doing, um, you know, 10 spots for Coca-Cola or something. And, um, (laughs) and that's what you're, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? There's there's a part of the industry that is begging for you to do more of the same and will pay you well for it. Mm -hmm. And that's one path. And then there's a different way into success where you stand out with new ideas and people are always hungry for new ways to sell products. Um, They're both legitimate ways to build a career. Um, That's another thing I should probably say is that um, you can have a pretty cool career um just uh cranking out what everyone else is doing because you're good at it you're reliable and you're and you build a client base and you try to grow it over time and every now and then a bigger opportunity does come along mm-hmm. uh, and you know you can step up the ladder a rung and keep going right it's just that there're there two different paths and you have to understand the pitfalls of both of them
0: right yeah because i mean that's the thing that we consistently talk about on the show there is no there is no system in place it's not like being a firefighter you know what i mean where it's like you go to fire academy you put your time in You, uh, you know, you put in a certain amount of hours, you got to become an EMT, and then you're guaranteed to get to a point where you're making money and you're getting a retirement fund. That doesn't exist in our business. There isn't a set of rules that you can just strategically follow to be a cinematographer, correct? Correct. Yeah. So like we're, we're consistently trying to figure out what angle to take. And I can tell you from personal experience, I drove myself fucking crazy doing that in the commercial world, trying to figure out how to crack the coat, trying to figure out, like, what do I do and what do I shoot? And let me shoot this let me shoot that. And I found it was disheartening for me because I was losing focus of what excited me, what really got me going and what, my, what I was really excited about. And then I started to understand more that people really only gave a shit about the stuff that I was really excited about. And so maybe I'm not the guy to do diaper commercials. Because it's not, it's not in my DNA to do that.
1: Well, here's the other thing that's important to understand, I think, is that um, at the end of the chain, at the end of the sort of, you know, node chain, uh, what's defining success, right? Like, um, if you come up with, you know, if you make the diaper commercial, mm-hmm. it, they air it, and the agency sells it to the client and the client says oh great diaper commercial thanks when we make our next set we'll call you mm-hmm. um, the you know the sort of the loop the, the way that bounces and comes back to you as a director it doesn't you're you're just you're, you're creating a widget um, right but right. you you make a YouTube channel where you're doing something fun and, and creative and unique that entertains everybody the the, the feedback loop is everybody wants to watch and you have more likes on your channel and you build an audience, right? Uh, movies. If you make a movie that everyone loves to see, they buy tickets and it makes a lot of money and that bounces back on you because you made a studio a bunch of money and now they want you to go make, they want you to do something else and make money for them again. There's no, uh, in the commercial world, how is, how are you going to define success? Mm hmm. And it seems to me in the commercial work world, because I spent a lot of time in it, it's the success is really like I remember thinking, OK, I, I shot this commercial. It looks great. I, I went to the any session and with the director and the agency and they loved the way it looked. So uh, how does that benefit me? Well, I guess. To the degree they liked the film, they might think of me again. Right. 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 Um, but is anyone really going to go, ooh, remember that shot of the diapers Aaron did? Um, the way the sunlight came across the diapers. Let's get him for the next one. It's like, no, there's no loop. There's no economic structure for me to build business out of photographing diapers. Right. I can't. There's no way. Like, Whereas if you make a million-dollar movie and it goes to Sundance and Netflix buys it, Right and there's an audience and Netflix needs content and they now turn to you to give them more original, unique content. There's an economic model by which you can build success. Mm -hmm. Right. So each, you know, to us, shooting a commercial feels like filmmaking the same way shooting a movie feels like filmmaking, but they're two different feedback loops in terms of how you can build success.
0: Very smart way to look at it. Totally yeah. smart way to look at it. Yeah,
1: and, I, and the only way in the commercial world is the guy who does the iPhone thing. Oh my God, he shot. He made a camera obscura and shot a commercial with his living room curtains. <laughs> 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 this is amazing. We got to get that guy. That's no. the you know that's the only really way. You know, you're going to excite the agency world is that they have, like you said, they have something to sell to their clients. How, you know, can I interest you on in your next Coca-Cola spot? Uh, <laughs> and a guy we have that can shoot your whole commercial with his living room by creating a cameo obscura with his bedroom curtains. Um, and then boom, you know, it's uh, it's a little like fashion.
0: Yeah, it totally is. Because it, everything goes in and out of style so quick. Yeah. And you can't really rely on that stuff. And then there is, you know your technique and if you're banking on a technique or technology, good luck because that uh, it's, it's so fickle. You never, you never know. Yeah. And that's what, the
1: beauty of television or movies. Guess hmm. what? The audience gets to decide whether you work again. If the audience loves what you did, someone's going to hire you to do it again.
0: Totally. Right? Totally.
1: It's, it's a totally different structure in building a career. You know, that's one of the reasons I, wanted to direct is because I loved the direct correlation between like, if I shot a movie successfully, Mm -hmm. um, you know, theoretically a director is going to see some cool work and want to hire me. Um, But there's all kinds of cool work out there. Right. So I'm still competing and, uh, and um, then you got to hope that directors even prioritize, you know, there's a lot of directors out there that, you know their goal really isn't to have the best looking movie in the world they just you know um
0: right yeah a lot of them aren't even visually oriented at all right so So if you're
1: trying to build a career on like directors seeing your work and desperately wanting you to do what you did for their movie not every director out there thinks that way um they'd much rather use their buddy from film school um just because they're comfortable, so of course, now you're of now the now your target's getting smaller. And, but as a director, if you make a entertaining piece of filmmaking and audiences respond to it, um, boom, someone's going to want you to do it again.
0: So cool, too. I mean, I'm like that. That would, I think that would be my next question to you is like, how'd you catch Tom Hanks's eye? Was it your feature that you did before this? And then, more importantly, in the feature that you did before this, how'd you get Robert Duvall and, and fucking Bill Murray? How'd you convince those guys to be in your movie?
1: Well, Get Low had Robert Duvall attached to it, and the producer saw my short film, which was Period, a Period Faulkner. Piece. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And Get Low was period in the you know same period, so there, there was a bit of the strawberry ice cream going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, uh, but then, you know, we hit it off, and our aspirations for what it could be were the same, and we partnered up. And then the next challenge was uh, Duval was attached, but had to sign off on the script, and I had a writer friend um, who was who I'd known who would be perfect. Uh, a friend from the South who was a very soulful writer and kind of lived in these worlds, um, you know, about 15 years older than me. And mm-hmm. uh, he was a truck driver before he was a <laughs> writer, right? Rad. That's a, really that, cool. A songwriter. He we came out to LA to be a country songwriter. So cool. Was, very cool. And, um, I brought him on to rewrite the screenplay, which is what sealed the deal because Robert Duvall loved his writing so much. And then, of course, once Robert Duvall committed, based on the writing, um, Robert Duvall and the writing inspired Bill. You know, it wasn't me that Bill was dying to work with. Bill Bill liked the script, and he admired Robert Duvall as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you snowball it, right? You, um, you know, you, at the bottom of the pyramid is a screenplay. And then from there, you build it with an actor. And then from there, you build it the budget with the act, you know, you find the budget with the actor in the screenplay and you roll the rock up the hill until it takes, starts to take shape. Um, and that's how get low came about. <laughs> um, Greyhound was like a very sort of magical opportunity in that, you know, Tom had his pick of the litter, obviously, as you can imagine. Sure. And he shared, he shared the screenplay of Greyhound with lots of his big director friends. Um, But I don't think he ever had in mind to make it with any of them because it was, I could tell that he wanted to be a, uh, an an equal partner with somebody. He, you know, he was going to be my boss and my movie star. Hmm. I needed, uh, he was, he, you know, I had to bring the right vision that married up with his to get the job. And then once I had the job, uh, he had to let me direct the film or or the whole thing breaks down right so it was it was this really fine finely balanced thing where he needed just the right guy who would be willing to partner with him on a creative level that maybe he couldn't get from another uh, huge monster filmmaker
0: sure of course but,
1: but at the same time I wasn't gonna engage with this unless I could bring what I had to bring to it and it was like the perfect balance, um, and that's what created the opportunity for me.
0: Wow, that's so great, man! That's really cool to hear. Yeah, and, and you know, Tom Hanks seems like such a such a class act. It really, do, he really does. I mean, is he is he that way to work
1: with? Oh yeah, yeah. And he and I, I just as I just said, he and he's the one who hired me, so he was my boss. And then he had to, then I had to work with him as a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. And that's a different hat than boss. Right. (laughs) Because it's a director, you know, feature films is a director's medium. You know, as soon as he hired me, he suddenly was working for me, essentially, uh, or with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then um, when you get to the set, obviously, the director has to take command over a set in a classic sort of director actor relationship. So then he had to become an actor even though he was the guy who hired me, right? So what was amazing about Tom is that he was able to shift from each of these positions, from producer to screenwriter to movie star, uh, and he understood, obviously, because of his experience and his character, he was, a- he was able to, to sort of put, take one hat off and put the other one on in such a way that um, I was able to bring him my best work. You know, because at any moment he could have vetoed just about anything right obviously sure yeah, um, yeah. but he knew he understood enough about the way the creative process works to um, to give me the freedom to do my thing um, even though it was inside of something that he had envisioned from the start himself as the writer. He was the one at the beginning picturing what he wanted this thing to be. then uh, he had to hand it off to somebody.
0: That's the plight of that's the plight of screenwriters, though. I always my screenwriting partner that has done my my, my last two feature scripts. I, <laughs> I always I always laugh at him. I go, dude, I feel so terrible for you because you know you're get, becoming so attached to ideas and you're you're flushing out these things and you're getting it to a point. You're getting through that impossible hurdle, right? Of like, how does it, how do I get this little idea to make sense, and then how do I get this 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 sense that I've made of it be entertaining for an hour and a half or however long this piece is going to be with story arcs and thematic arcs and do all this sort of stuff. And then they do that hard work and then they turn in a draft and then that draft is read by producers or whoever. And they're just like, ah, you know, I don't like this. It's like, well, let's just take a minute here (laughs) to understand the hurdle that it took to get (laughs) in your hands to begin with. I was just,
1: you know, it's funny. I was just rewatching. I was bored and I was on YouTube and I found that scene. You ever seen the big picture?
0: Uh, which one's the big picture?
1: with Kevin Bacon as the film student?
0: Oh, I don't know if I have. I oh, don't think I have seen God. that.
1: if you everyone out there needs to immediately okay I'm it down. the big picture starring Kevin Bacon, okay, and it's the story of a it opens at a student film contest uh, contest with three young students, Kevin Bacon being the lead, uh, competing for the student film prize, and Kevin wins, and he is then thrown into the studio system. Uh, and given his first feature and he goes through development and uh, and script changes <laughs> and um, he hires a his, he wants to hire a cinematographer but the studio wants a different a bigger cinematographer and uh, and then he's got a girlfriend and 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 the female movie stars start coming after him and threaten his you know so it's a awesome comedy built on that 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 experience that we all went through where you're moving from student to professional Mm -hmm. and there's a scene where he's in his first executive meeting with all the big shots in the studio head and there's the yes man and there's the yes woman and there's the (laughs) guy who agrees with everything the exec you know his boss says and there's a first line of the and everyone's uncomfortable and there's a scene where um he says, someone says yeah the colors will be beautiful and rich and he goes well no they won't uh, i'm shooting in black and white and uh some, some studio guy says well you can't they don't even make black and white projectors anymore <laughs> right <laughs> And another guy chimes in and says, uh, you know what I think you should do? You should add a scene at the end of the movie where they all throw clamshells. I think that would be great. <laughs> and it, So you can imagine, right? And it's it's got a kind of a Coen Brothers-esque take on that first film, that your first experience as a young filmmaker.
0: Yeah, no, totally. That
1: world. And there's a lot of revenge. Like, obviously, it was written by someone who'd been through it. And Martin Short Short plays this amazing agent um, who tries to sign Kevin Bacon as his client. Yeah. And he's hilarious. He somehow encapsulated every agent that ever existed into one.
0: (laughs) It's very true. They're very specific.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you got to see it.
0: Oh, I got to watch it, man. It sounds amazing. It's cathartic. Uh, yeah, no, that's something to keep in mind. A lot of the young people that are listening to the show is that, you know, we spend our time and we build our techniques and it's, it's important for you to take those, you know, five years or whatever it takes for you to figure out how to even do what it is that you do. And then, then know that the whole next curve of learning is now going into the real world and seeing how the real world actually works and then trying to pivot. (laughs) uh with the processes that you've set up prior to that um it uh definitely is a learning curve
1: it's true yeah it's a whole there's you know the filmmaking ends up being a very small percentage of oh my
0: god yeah oh my god people talk to me like i talk to people all the time like what's it like to be a director i'm like i don't know i do it like two percent of the time (laughs) the rest of the time i'm doing everything else I'm pretending to be a director, I'm writing things, I'm prepping things, I'm talking about things, I'm meeting people. It's like the, actually being on set is such a small fraction of my life. Um, but it's weird, man. It's weird how that that, that game works,
1: you know? Um, I was on Greyhound for three years. Wow. Um, so that's 35 days out of three times 365, let me calculate it here, divided by, uh, that's... Uh, 35 days was 0.3% <laughs> that I was directing. Uh, now, I'm, I'm throwing out prep, obviously. but
0: Sure, but it's depressing.
1: But it, you know, <laughs> I, it took me five years to get, get low off the ground. And the first $2 million of our budget came from my prom date. Uh, really? I think the prom date hooked me up with a uh, corporate investor. Oh. and. and it took five years and we shot Get Low in 24, 12 hour days. <laughs>
0: that's what, you know, and that's what this show is all about. That's why I keep saying to you guys on the show, it's about being in love with the process. And the process isn't just being on set and learning how to use lenses and do all that stuff, it is just having a respect for like the smaller conversations, the little things that fill our time, because most of our time is filled with prep, most of our time is filled with begging. Most of our time is filled with like, hey, can I please, please, please work for free? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Uh, and also, you know what else is a big part of it, I think, is you have a group of friends, like-minded friends with mm-hmm. passion. And one of the ways you can keep yourself afloat, I think, is is keeping that enthusiasm and passion alive um, by sharing the experience with everyone else that's moving through the same process. I had all these film school friends that were, they weren't all necessary necessarily trying to be cinematographers like me, but they all had their own journeys and you, you know, you, you support each other and you share stories and you share what you learned. And when you have a disappointment uh, you know, you call them up and and uh, you, you support each other. Uh, that's a big part of it is keeping that passion shared passion alive Mm. and the sense that you're not on this journey alone because you can learn a lot from, from what everyone, you know, if you, if you came out of film school and you're lucky enough to have friends that you, you're moving through this journey with, it's really cool to be able to share what you learn along the way and keep, keep each other, uh, keep each other's uh, pilot light lit.
0: Yeah. Um, No, totally dude. Totally. Look, Aaron, this has been phenomenal we've been talking for an hour and a half dude ah, so this,
1: yeah no i enjoyed it
0: this has been fantastic i hope um, it's
1: been helpful um I, it,
0: if if anything it's just great i think yes it's been helpful but personally i don't care about the audience <laughs> but personally personally it's just been really nice to hear your story for that reason what you were just saying it's just really nice to hear you know that the struggle is real but also you know the fact that you got to work with tom hanks you know?
1: Yeah, it happens. You know, uh, maybe, maybe the best thing to say to wrap it all up is that, um, like you were saying earlier, there's no pathway. There's no one path. You don't become an assistant and then this and this, you know, you don't become the Mm -hmm. fire chief and then there's no one pathway. And so one of the first things young people ask, you know, they want, they say, "I, I don't know what direction to go if I don't know what the steps are. Right. But what I've learned and my, my last thought on it was that the one thing that everyone I know who finally succeeded uh, had in common with each other is that they actually, they kept going. Yes. And and I know that sounds like an oversimplification, but it's, it shouldn't be underrated that, um, that the people who kept going got there. Right. Yep.
0: No, it's, A hundred percent true. It's a hundred percent true. And I'll chime in a little bit on the back end of this and just say that they, the the people that listen to the show have heard me say that before, where it's like, you just got to keep throttling. You got to keep going through it. And it's a, it's a stamina game. It's an endurance game. And for me saying that so many times to folks myself, I recently this week ran into a roadblock, like a pretty intense roadblock and they always come out of nowhere. And you think that you're you're prepped for them. You think that you're like, look, I've done this before. Okay, that's fine. It's not going to hit me hard. I got hit really fucking hard with one of my projects this week. And I'm not going to get into details, but I got hit. And it hit at such a level of like, fuck it, now I'm depressed. What am I going to do? And anger flows in. You sort of deal with all these emotions where you're just like, motherfucker, you know, and you're just pissed off at everything. And yep. it it took me six days, six days to cool down and have a conversation and then start talking to my writing partner. And in in your head, you just go, well, this is unfair. This business is unfair. Everything that's happening is, is unfair. And this sucks. And I've, I've earned this and I deserve this thing because of the amount of time that I've done this. And, and I have every right to emotionally break down and cry about this right now. But then what does that do? And if I give up, And if I stop, then I'm done. Then I've wasted 19 years.
1: That's right. I'm done. It's a little bit like, um, (laughs) this business is a little bit like, um, uh, what's that medicine for hair? uh, The um, Rogaine. Rogaine. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff that grows your hair. Yeah, yeah. You start using Rogaine, right? Because you think you're losing your hair. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you wake up one day and go, I don't fucking need Rogaine. And then you go, well, but wait a minute if I stop using Rogaine and it's actually kept my hair growing, my hair is going to fall out. Right. (laughs) And and So the only way I know if Rogaine is actually working is if I stop and let my hair fall out, (laughs) you know, and you realize they've, they've hooked you because now you can't stop using it even if it's not working (laughs) Uh, or you could potentially lose the hair it saved. Right. And a a business, a, a, a career in film is a lot like, rogaine it's like you've invested so much time and energy yeah you may have already invested and planted the seeds for the success that you're going to uh, arrive at a year from now to you know you may be already be on the path to right. where right. you're headed and you j- but you don't you you don't know yet
0: stay with it yeah
1: you won't see how this disappointment got you where you're going next until you get there Mm -hmm. Um, and so you just got to keep using the Rogaine (laughs) trusting that you know that that uh, that everything's working the way it's supposed to and uh, and that's also I think one of the things that makes the business very satisfying Um, by the time you finish making Greyhound and you get to see it on Apple TV you get to look back at all those uh, roadblocks and those tough times and uh it makes it that much sweeter because you go ah okay now i get it you know you can have huge stumbling blocks and disappointments and still get somewhere you know they aren't necessarily indicative that you're hitting a brick wall it's just it just means you're gonna it's gonna happen in a different way and at a different time so hang in there man (laughs) You'll you'll get there
0: thanks brother I appreciate it, man. And I appreciate you taking the time. And this has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed our conversation. me too. Um, Well, thanks for being on the show. And thank you, everybody, for listening.
1: Yeah, good luck, everybody.
0: All right. Well, there it is. Uh, Today's episode, I thought, was really great. You never know, right? When you get uh, these, at least for me, when I get these interviews lined up, you never know what you're getting and I had to meet Aaron pretty quick. We met for about a minute and a half before we started this conversation and uh, you could hear us sort of finding our footing but once we did, man, fucking hey, He's a good dude, I really dig him and I'm, I'm inspired by his, his uh, path to where he's got. Uh, of course, he's a cinematographer at heart and I'm in love with those guys so Um, And I hope you guys learned something because we tried to be incredibly honest on the show and him and I were talking after We stopped rolling and he may come back on the show and get more into it because he really believes in sharing His stories and sharing his experiences with newcomers um, Because he wishes that he had it when he was coming up the same way I do man And a lot of folks are like why would you share all this stuff? Why would you give away your knowledge? Why would you say this stuff? Uh, because It's on us to help the next generation. It's on us to make things a little bit easier so that the work will become better, right? Can you only imagine the evolution of the work if people were helping people up? That's the point, right? It isn't, this isn't something secret. Like I I, I haven't figured out process to doing this thing and i'm not fencing myself into a gated community and it's like yeah, stay out and i have to hold on to this thing i found it because it never really stays with anybody i don't care who the fuck you are right you could be the best of the best you could be the the, the the leading actor america's sweetheart and it's eventually going to leave you and you're only as good as your last project in every person involved on films right when Tom Hanks was done with Greyhound he was unemployed so he goes right back into it again he's got to find something he's got to develop something same thing with Aaron same thing with me same thing with anybody that's on the show and so it's important for those of you listening to really understand that this is the life it comes with its ups it comes with its downs and Aaron said it really well it's about sticking with it and I, you know I was being honest with you guys when I said I had a rough week and I we've recorded this episode. I'm recording this episode like a week or two weeks in advance. So this was two weeks ago. I had a rough week and nothing, nothing that's nothing that's really worth reporting on nothing that's going to change the course of my career and it's not going to change whether or not stuff happens, but it was a tough fucking week and it comes out of nowhere, man. You get that call. And what you're trying to do, without being specific, what you're trying to do is build momentum. That's always the, the, whenever you come up with an idea and you write it down and you're ready to make it, you have to build momentum. That's the only way to get anybody attached or interested. It's not the only way to get you guys excited about the next episode is I have to keep the momentum up, right? And I don't mind it. I don't mind if the momentum is still moving forward. I don't care if it's moving at a slower pace. It could be moving at a fucking crawl space and you're like, okay, it's still going forward. It's just those moments where you feel the momentum slowing and stopping. Those are the tough moments. And sometimes it, with a project, that happens. Sometimes a project hits that point where the momentum, some for some reason, stops. And it oftentimes, most times, doesn't have anything to do with me. That's the most frustrating aspect. Of trying to get a project off the ground and trying to get a project to where it is is that you and me we spend our time developing our skills we spend our time putting together what we need to be able to do this right learning right learning the language learning the pacing learning editing learning how to communicate finding self-discovery within yourself having life experiences that you can express on screen those are all the necessary, like that's important, it's imperative that we do that stuff. But none of those, none of those techniques come into play when shit's getting greenlit. Isn't that insane? So there hits a point where you make stuff and you hand it off to other people and then they take that fucking thing and they're like, we're gonna do this and then they run with it and you're on the sidelines. That's the hardest part for me as a filmmaker because I've had my hands in everything. From the moment that spark starts in my brain, that piece is with me and I'm manipulating it and I'm pushing it. I'm rolling that ball uphill, getting it to the point where it starts to roll down the other fucking side. And I'm running in front of that ball, pushing people aside, making sure that thing continues to roll. But then it hits a point where you have to hand that off to somebody else. It's really difficult. And oftentimes, things slow down. And like I said, it, it, it hits hard because you've heard me on the show a hundred times. Tell people a hundred different ways to get through it. Right? It's fine. You keep pushing forward. you still got to get you through this. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be good. Keep going. Keep going. But when this, when when the way that this business—it's a cruel fucking asshole. This business because it comes in, in and sneaks sh- it, it, it fucking sidewinds you. Right? You're driving. You're driving down the street, you're at a good pace, you follow the rules, you're stopping at all the red lights, you go through an intersection, it's your turn, and bam, a fucking car hits you, right? That's how this business works. And usually, sometimes it hits you with good news, sometimes, it most of the time, it hits you with bad news. And so then, you have to go through that depression. And I think this is relevant to what everybody's going through right now, because we're all in a depression, straight across the board, right? You get some bad news right now, right? someone's someone calls you up and says hey you didn't get that job that you wanted or someone calls you up and says hey uh, you know I'm not gonna be able to make it there or, or maybe someone breaks up with you right and what the mindset that we're in right now where everything seems to be really difficult it's very easy for us to, to vacuum in all that negative shit around one thing. I didn't get that fucking job and the world sucks right now and no one's ever. and then you start to get mad right i get that east coast anger in me where i start to get fucking mad and i get irritated and then i get upset and then i'm depressed i'm telling you man i'm, I'm being honest with you guys so that you know that happens to everybody it happens to all of us six days of depression six days of it pretty intense but i will say this I was able to lean on friends and I was able to lean on fellow creatives and just talking about a new idea, talking about a new story and coming up with new stuff and then realizing that I can now go back into to, to researching new things and loving new things and getting into that again. I was excited. I was having a conversation earlier today and I was just like, yep, nope, nope, this is right. And thank fucking God that I was able to do that because if I didn't, if I gave up, if I turned it all in at that moment then for, for what am I gonna do right it's unfair yeah it is but then what? keep going that's it man that's the theme of today's show keep going hope you guys liked it hope you guys appreciate the honesty hope you guys appreciate the show like I said, drop me a message on Instagram at Mike Petchy or on the uh, podcast Instagram at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process Pod. And uh, thank you guys. I love you guys, and I will see you next Tuesday.